In fact, PhDs in general are really, really closed-minded, um, which is surprising. Basically, education makes you more closed-minded. And education sells itself in general as making you open-minded. So this is strange. It, it does the exact opposite, suggesting that, you know, formal education anyway is basically a propaganda mechanism that the longer you're, you know, seeped in it, Right, you know, a PhD is, by the time you're done a PhD, you've been seeped in this propaganda for 20 years. Uh, empirically, it, the way people come out is what you would predict if education were actually a propaganda machine. Welcome to the Tucson Bitcoin Podcast. Today, my guest is Peter St. Ange, and he came on my radar because he is a well-educated economist that actually likes Bitcoin. And so he is kind of unique in that regard. And uh, we had an awesome conversation discussing Bitcoin, uh, the upcoming looming potential debt default, you know, what would be the ramifications of that? Would it be a good thing or would it be a bad thing? And, you know, what I took away from it is just, at the end of the day, free markets are great they provide things that we need even in the case of a cat as janet yellen would say a catastrophic failure people would scramble they would work hard and they would bounce back and the biggest thing holding us back right now from really having a good economy is all of these stupid regulations that the government has and then them also messing everything up with money printing so awesome conversation with peter i'm pretty stoked about it uh we got some cool things we had a beautiful awesome bitcoin meetup in scottsdale uh last tuesday great time chatting bitcoin with some people uh we have a halloween party coming up in october i forgot when the date is but i'll keep you posted on that i'm really stoked for brian harrington to come out but yeah I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, thanks for doing this, Peter. It's good to have you on. Yeah, of course. It's great to be here. Yeah, there's not a ton of people that have, uh, that I know of that have traditional uh, educations and are in the economic circles that are Bitcoiners. So it's cool to see you there uh, for sure. Yeah, most economists are uh, surprisingly behind the times on Bitcoin. Uh, there's there's only a couple of us. And, you know, I've been active in the space for seven years now. And early on, I figured, hey, this is great. There's almost no economists doing it. So I'll be early. And it turns out seven years later, there's still almost no economists doing it. <laughs> so it's been surprising. I've, I've got a theory on why that is, but but why do you think? it is that way let's hear your theory first well i think you know the economists and intellectuals are employed and funded by the state and so they have a uh incentive to prop up state theory and a disincentive to uh, promote and think about things that uh kind of point towards or, or work towards the illegitimacy of the state which is what bitcoin is and yeah yeah, I think for sure. Um, the individual economists would think you're crazy for saying that because they don't feel it person to person. You know, like it's not like they get a call from the you know Department of Propaganda telling them what to say. So you know, they they would completely disagree. 
But the thing is, the pattern you're describing, that's what happened to economics, broadly speaking, uh, where, you know, the sort of classical view of macro in general, um, you know, which said that the government should basically stay out of everything, okay, that traditional view got completely replaced by Keynesianism, not because Keynesianism is, is, is correct. Uh, it's the same garbage that have been spouted for centuries as inflationism. Um, it wasn't correct. It was because of the funding, right? <laughs> and then the funding sort of creates its own like army of converts. And then the way that academia works is a kind of a consensus mechanism where, you know, when you've got a critical mass of, you know, state funded bots, they then spread their ideology through the system by access to journals and academic positions and things like that. So, right, they can't necessarily see it. And so, you know, they would strongly disagree. They'd say, no, what are you crazy? I can say anything I want, but they don't see how the process works, right? So, you know, they were trained by professors who got their position because they, you know, regurgitated state talking points. And so, you know, it's a, it's a complicated or it's a complicated process, but at the end of that process, exactly. Uh, effectively, the state tells economists what to say. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's funny just hearing this stuff. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Steve Hankey and his thoughts on Bitcoin? Uh, I don't want to hit him too hard just because broadly speaking, um, I like the guy. Uh, he's, you know, studied uh, failed currencies. That's, that's kind of been one of his areas of focus. Um, what's shocked me is how bad his uh, takes are on Bitcoin. I mean, he's really, really terrible on Bitcoin. I'd put him in the same category as Peter Schiff, right? So I love Peter Schiff on almost every topic under the sun, except Bitcoin. He's horrible on Bitcoin. He's got no idea what he's talking about. Uh, so, you know, broadly speaking, I think Hanky's a good guy and he does his best and whatnot, but he's just, it's mystifying to me that he could spend a big chunk of his career studying failed currencies, studying how governments use fiat to wreck their economies. And somehow it's just never gotten through that Bitcoin fixes this, which it does. Uh, so I'm, I'm mystified. Um, I mean, at this point, Hanky's at an age where he's probably not in the market for fundamentally changing his opinion. So, you know, I don't bother trying to talk him into anything. Um, you know, there's, there's a uh, point of view that academics in general, um, they tend to be extremely close-minded, much more close-minded than regular people, which again, is funny because if you ask academics, they think they're the, you know, uh, icon, like the iconic open-minded person. Uh, but I mean, there's a lot of research on this, on various questions, um, you know, and they have various instruments to determine statistically how open-minded people are, psychology tests, and academics are the worst. In fact, PhDs in general are really, really closed-minded, um, which is surprising. Basically, education makes you more closed-minded. And Education sells itself in general as making you open-minded. So this is strange. It, it does the exact opposite, suggesting that, you know, formal education anyway is basically a propaganda mechanism that the longer you're, you know, seeped in it, 
right? And, you know, a PhD is, by the time you've done a PhD, you've been seeped in this propaganda for 20 years. Uh, empirically, it, the way people come out is what you would predict if education were actually a propaganda machine, which is they become extraordinarily closed-minded. Uh, academics are, you know, the free base concentrated form of this closed-mindedness, particularly like Steve Hankey, an economist who's prestigious and I believe in his 70s, he ain't changing his mind. He's as closed-minded as you could possibly get just looking at the instruments around him, not, not judging the man, but just, you know, judging by his background, the amount of education, the prestige, the position, the funding that goes to Hopkins, all the rest of it, he ain't changing his mind. And, you know, a less concentrated form of that is generally true for all academic skeptics of Bitcoin. Generally, it is not even worth trying to change their mind. They're not going to change their mind. They are fanatics. I mean, academics in general are fanatics for whatever their point of view is. You know, if it's uh, global warming, they're fanatics about that. If it's, you know, whatever the, even scientific topics, uh, there's a book by uh, Bill Bryson, The Short History of Everything. And he goes through the various sort of scientific revolutions on plate tectonics and biology and evolution, all these other scientific topics. And throughout what is striking is the academics don't change their mind. They simply get old and die. Nobody changes their mind in academia, which side issue is a reason why we should not be worshiping this thing. Academia is not, absolutely not a vehicle for discovering truth. It is a vehicle for setting the consensus in stone forevermore. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm a, I'm a college dropout because I couldn't handle it. And I was studying economics at the University of Arizona, and I'd already read uh, too much Rothbard to uh, go along with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that happens. Well, you were lucky. You got the Rothbard early. I didn't. I had never heard of Rothbard until I was almost thirty. Through college, through an econ degree, never, never heard the name Mises or Rothbard because that's education today. Yeah. To propaganda machine. Yeah, so I, you know, a big part of what I've been doing and, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners have been helping me with is uh, kind of breaking things back down to first principles and unwinding that uh, status propaganda that I, you know, all of these assumptions that I've built on um, to come up with these faulty ideas. Uh, what, what was that process like for you getting out of school and kind of discovering libertarian Austrian economics? So I'd always been sympathetic morally. Um, there is, by the way, a lot of research that your moral point of view uh, is innate, right? A, a, a substantial percent of that is genetic. Um, which is pretty funny because we, we pretend that ideology is something you choose into. Um, but at any rate, uh, I was always libertarian. Um, I, I didn't know about Austrian economics, so I would have called myself a Friedmanite for Milton Friedman. Um, on most topics, you know, the Chicago school of Milton Friedman and the Austrian school of Mises and Rothbard, on most topics, um, we do see eye to eye. Right. So, you know, generally we feel that um, the government should not intervene in the economy. Uh, anything it tries to fix, it will generally make worse in almost all cases. 
Um, Friedmanites would make uh, exceptions for national defense and maybe the police, uh, Rothbardians would not. Um, but broadly speaking, they agree. However, the one really big area where the two sides disagree is of course uh, money, right? So the Chicago school, which you know, the vast majority of academic economists, first of all, the vast majority of academic economists are left-wing maybe surprisingly, but something like 70% in opinion polls. Uh, let's see, there's opinion polls. There's also uh, donating to politicians. All right, so broadly speaking, about 70% of academic economists are left-wing. Of the remaining 30%, my guess is, you know, 90% plus are Chicago school, right? And so in their mind, um, you know, they're free market on most topics. Um, but when it specifically comes to money, in their mind, uh, you can't just leave the money to the market, right? The government has to come in and, you know, make the money supply flexible because otherwise the economy will keep running into crises. And the Austrian version is really, I mean, I wish we could just call it the classic version because it was economics for really all of its history, except for this bizarre Keynesian interlude. Um, but according to Austrians, uh, you know, there is no magic quantity of money. Um, any, any amount will do. Um, you know, gold, there was no central authority deciding how much gold was going to exist, uh, deciding whether we need more gold at Christmas time, you know, because people want to walk around with more gold in their pocket. I mean, you know, we had no authority and it was fine. There was no problem. Uh, and so Austrians would say, no, 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 there's, there's absolutely nothing the government can help with when it comes for money. Uh, but on the flip side, of course, there's a lot of things that the government can screw up uh, because money is, you know, it's extremely profitable to play around with money, right? It's profitable for counterfeiters, it's counterfeit, or it's um, profitable for people who create altcoins, and it's profitable for governments. So we would say, no, you just, you just keep the government out of it altogether. So for me, when you know, I came out of college as a Freemanite, interested in the Chicago school, um, when I came across Austrian, I wasn't that interested in money yet. This was 1998, so Bitcoin was a glimmer in all of our eye. I wasn't that interested in money yet. Um, what really drew me to Austrian, oddly enough, is actually that my corporate background uh, is in marketing. So I came out of college with an econ degree. I speak a bunch of languages, so found a really good job that was going to pay me a bunch because of all those languages. And so I sort of accidentally stumbled into marketing. <laughs> and marketing... Um, is structured very differently than sort of Keynesian or you know mainstream economics. Um, marketing tends to see all value as subjective, right? There is there is no value in the world outside of what's in people's mind. Okay, all value is in is in your head, and according to Chicago economics, Keynesian economics, they. If you ask them point blank, they'll say, yes, you know, value is subjective, but they don't behave like that, okay? Their models are sort of built as if the world has this independent value swimming, swimming around everywhere. And that just struck me as completely unrealistic, right? It felt to me that the world works the marketing way, 
All right. And the reason that matters is, you know, there are a whole lot of debates in economics. You know, for example, if you take something like uh, banning uh, drugs. Okay. So if drugs have a high price, then, you know, an Austrian would say, well, then drugs are extremely valuable and we should, get, you know, make sure that people can enjoy their drugs. Why? Because they're valuable to them. And we know this because they're spending money on them. All right, so you know you get these fundamentally pro-market conclusions if you believe that value lives in people's heads. And I had already sort of been converted to that point of view from marketing. And so for me, discovering Austrian economics, the killer app for me was subjective value, right? The fact that Austrian economics recognizes that value is in people's heads because value is in people's heads, markets are always and everywhere superior to government. That's super interesting. I think that's a, a great topic, you know, and like if you're looking at subjective uh, value, uh, that's a great ex explanation for what's happening with the whole NFT nonsense right now, where there's nothing inherently or objectively valuable about a picture with a cryptographic hash attached to it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's tricky because, uh, you know, the implication is that uh, NFTs have value because people are paying for them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, then the next question is, okay, but will they continue to have value in the future? Yeah. No. Right. And, you know, there I'm very skeptical. I'm not anti-NFT in the sense that there is a relatively small market for collectibles, for numbered art prints, right? There is something legitimate that people do with things that resemble on an nft mm -hmm. um but at the same time and and you know also nfts potentially have a lot of um potential in the future where for example you could replace the stock market with something based on nfts so i mean they they have a potential freedom promoting um function but fundamentally right i would agree at the moment it strikes me as nfts are extremely frothy frothy they're very speculative um you know there's a fundamental supply problem that um you know it's extremely easy to create nfts now if you're talking an nft of a picasso painting and it's the only one guarantee forever that's a nice looking supply but in the case of the NFTs that are dominating the market, these are generally things that anybody could come up with. Um, and so I, I, I don't think NFTs are a very good place to park your money, for example. Um, I think NFTs are probably going to be tulips. Now, of course, what's funny is that you've got a bunch of guys like Mark Cuban, who for years and years, they were on and on how Bitcoin is so risky you know, you got to stay out of this. I, I don't know if Mark Cuban said tulip mania, but at any rate, a lot of them were making those kinds of critiques. And now these exact same guys are jumping into NFTs, which are a heck of a lot closer to tulips. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, you're like, wait, what happened to your grown up, uh, you know, risk counseling? So, you know, it begs the question is just, just because these guys missed Bitcoin, they didn't become millionaires on that. So now, you know, they've got sour grapes and they're pissed off about Bitcoin. So they're, you know, but uh, perfectly happy to gamble on the next big thing. Yeah. I, I like to rag on Mark Cuban a lot. 
when we get to to hyper bitcoinization i'll gift him a <laughs> banana plantation yeah i had a back and forth with him a couple of weeks ago he he was uh he said how he only owned, it was something pathetic, like $5,000 worth of Dogecoin. And, you know, he'd been pimping it all this time. And it was like, Mark, you, you might have shared that earlier. Like, let people know that, you know, Doge might be fun to, you know, fart around with, but this is not somewhere to store your money because a lot of people did store real money in Dogecoin. So we had a back and forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of these guys have just been, ridiculous you know they were playing the whole mature conservative investor routine and then all of a sudden they said shiny things let me at them yeah i, I don't know what it is but it, it it's entertaining i at the end of the day i find it very- it is entertaining that's true that's true there's the value so yeah speaking of like parking your money uh the u.s is um it's it's kind of a normal conversation right now from like Janet Yellen or Jerome Powell to discuss the potential for a debt default. And uh, you outlined that in your uh, article, what a debt crisis means for Bitcoin, um, kind of talked about restructuring of debt. Uh, I mean, it seems like treasury bonds and municipal bonds are just a terrible place to park your money right now. Um, but yeah, we were kind of talking before recording about the the potential for a debt default, and uh, yeah. So, what, what's kind of your outlook on that right now? Yeah, it's increasingly likely. Um, I mean, in a sense, it's inevitable. Uh, you know, if you look at the dynamics um, with you know modern governments issuing debt, it was sort of set in stone in terms of the storyline when you know, in 1971 with the Nixon shock, right? So gold has traditionally restrained governments. It has made it so that they can't just issue unlimited debt. Once Nixon took that away, it was almost by habit that governments continued being relatively prudent. And they have been relatively prudent, to be fair, right? People in the 1970s assumed that we would have had hyperinflation by now, Hmm. okay? Um, And by hyperinflation, I mean like 50% a year. Uh, and, you know, in, in the major economies in the US, Europe, Japan, that has not been the case, right? So, I mean, they have been surprisingly prudent up until now. Um, they've been, you know, pretty bad, um, but they have not been hyperinflationary yet. Uh, the problem is that there's this sort of ratchet effect where, you know, that habit sort of goes away gradually. And why does it go away? Because it's largely enforced internally. Right. So Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, they care about inflation, not necessarily because, you know, they're going to get paid less if there's double digit inflation, but they have a reputation. Right. So, you know, there's a social layer to central banking, uh, just like there is on Bitcoin. And that is surprisingly effective. However, it is eroding. And moreover, you know, central bankers, the large central bankers, they want to keep inflation low, but they're up against this other dynamic in the form of governments that want to spend more, right? And specifically what governments like to do, what attracts governments um, about, you know, using central banks to create money is that it is much cheaper in the short run. It is much cheaper to, to, to print money than it is to tax it. 
right? If you tax money, you're going to piss somebody off, all right? And that could be regular people who vote. It could be rich people who have phones that they can call senators with. Um, one way or the other, you're going to bother people if you tax them. And so once government sort of crossed this Rubicon where it becomes um, cheap, personally cheap for them to, um, to print money instead of taxing, once they cross that, they tend to keep going faster and faster. And this, I mean, this has been throughout history, right? The Roman Empire, um, written about the Song Dynasty China around the year 1000, uh, 1100, 1200. Basically, once governments discover that it is less painful to raise money by printing it, it's off to the races. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. It usually does take a couple decades, and that's probably that social layer. But once you break that, there's no going back. You are historically destined for a crisis. The best you can hope for is some kind of crisis that happens early enough that the damage is not you know, catastrophic. Okay, So basically, once you cross that line, the ball is rolling. It's going to roll faster and faster. And at that point, you actually start rooting for a crisis because you want it to be a small crisis. Uh, so that's pretty much where we are now, I think. Um, you know, the most likely outcome at this point, I mean, the Fed is concerned about inflation. They are uh, sterilizing uh, the new money uh, that they've been creating. Lynn Alden, uh, if you're familiar with her, she's an analyst. Uh, she's been doing a lot of good work on um, how the Fed is sterilizing all this new money. I think the Fed created something like 40%, right? They, they grew the money supply by 40% over the past two years. They've almost entirely um, sterilized that, meaning that the money is not floating around in the economy being spent. It's being saved in bank accounts or as bank reserves, where it's kind of harmless. It doesn't um, hit prices. Now, that sterilization may change. This is one of my hypotheses that, you know, Biden is causing so much uh, basically regulatory and tax harm to the real economy that if that starts to bite, then you get pressure on the Fed to unsterilize all that new money. In, order, in other words, to pressure banks to push that new money out into the economy. If that happens, then we will probably start to see higher inflation rates. So probably at least 10%. Then you get this sort of sequence of events. You know, So how does the Fed react to 10% inflation? Do they do what they did in the 70s, which is they basically slammed the brakes on the economy, okay? caused a tremendous series of recessions through the late 70s and the 80s. That's really what gave Ronald Reagan the election were those recessions. Uh, so does the Fed do that again? Well, again, politicians don't want them to do that because they see what happened to Jimmy Carter losing the election. So they don't want to create a horrific series of, of uh, recessions with you know 10% unemployment. They really don't want that. So they're gonna pressure the Fed to keep going, sustain the inflation. And indeed, I mean, what we've seen now is that there's this whole army of inflationists, uh, they call themselves MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. There's these MMTers who are pushing for inflation and they're you know, increasingly um, influential in the mainstream left anyway. So if they get their way, 
that rather than what happened in the 70s, which is inflation came up and then the Fed killed it <laughs> by slamming on the economic brakes, rather than that happening would solve the problem, they may keep going, all right? And so if they keep going, then we could get greater and greater inflation. Now, I still put those odds low, but that is the theoretical scenario. Um, but either way, coming back to the original question, right? So what is the end game on debt? I mean, debt is going to keep growing until there's a crisis. There's no question because there's no predator to debt growth. Okay, there's nothing bad that happens to you until the crisis. In fact, it's all good along the way. You know, it's like drinking, um, what's the, uh, not motor oil, uh, cooler fluid, engine coolant. Okay, engine coolant is famously sweet, tastes delicious, right? So they're drinking engine coolant, feels great. The party's going, everybody compliments you on your fantastic cocktails, uh, but there's a price to pay later. Right. And so because there's nothing pushing discipline step by step, I think it is increasingly likely that they'll keep going until the debt becomes absolutely unsustainable. Now, the question is, when is the debt unsustainable? And, you know, we had a natural experiment back in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, Greece defaulted. Do you remember that? And what was interesting about Greece is that the debt payments going out of Greece every year before it defaulted, okay, those debt payments were a smaller burden than what comes out of the US every year in debt payments. So why did Greece default? And the answer is because it was attractive, okay? Governments don't default because they can't pay their bills. They default because they don't want to pay their bills. So a lot of the discussions of the U.S. defaulting, I think they incorrectly put that catastrophe further out in the future because they're imagining that governments only default when they can't pay their bills, but that is not at all how history works. Governments default when they decide that it's in their interests to stop paying their bills. So that comes a heck of a lot earlier. Right. And then, you know, at that point, you have all kinds of internal dynamics. So, you know, that social layer, uh, you know, what kind of voter um, backlash you would have due to default and so on. So there's a bunch of interesting dynamics in there. But the moral of the story is that hyperinflation is probably less likely than many on our side think. But default, I think, is more likely than many people expect. That's probably going to come earlier. And indeed, I mean, we saw that in 2008. Okay, we saw that with, uh, I believe, Illinois and California were both paying their debts with funny money. They were IOUs. Okay, default comes very, very early. (laughs) Now, that, you know, they didn't continue doing that because the crisis didn't last that long. But if the crisis keeps going, that we already can see that governments are going to flip over to default very, very quickly. Um, So, right. So what happens if the government does default? I mean, in practice, some people would argue that that's good. And the reason is because if the government defaults one time, nobody's going to lend it money anymore for a while, right? Uh, and so it gives you a balanced budget amendment for free. You know, so th- this is pretty fantastic. Um, some people, myself included, sort of root for a government default. 
Uh, now in practice, when governments do default, typically what they do is governments will divide the world into two parts, people they like and people they don't care about. The people they like, they're gonna make whole in a default, okay? So this might be um, uh, social security, you know, recipients, uh, sort of the, you know, widows and orphans are gonna be made whole. Uh, the domestic banks, Wall Street will probably be made whole. Okay, and, and the way they make them whole is that they issue brand new debt. Okay, and that brand new debt has, has better value to it because it's smaller. There's not as much of it. So sure. people might believe that they'll pay the new debt even though they didn't pay the old debt. Um, and, but then of course you've got the group of people that government does not like. And first in line for that is foreigners. So China will get wrecked, <laughs> Japan, all these countries that have bought um, sovereign U.S. debt will almost certainly get wrecked. Um, foreign creditors will get wrecked, right? Uh, there are a lot of uh, foreigners who own U.S. debt. Um, we're seeing that right now with uh, Evergrande in China, right? So it's a big property company. It just went bust. And the Chinese government is making Chinese whole, okay? They're going to, you know, they're going to pay off or bail out. Uh, you know, domestic banks and domestic companies that are creditors, the foreigners are getting shafted, right? So this is always how it works. Um, but now, of course, that also makes it, again, more likely that the government would default because foreigners are not sympathetic. Anywhere in the world, they're not sympathetic. Um, so anyway, the, the impact on regular Americans is probably surprisingly low. Uh, they probably get compensated with new debt. The foreigners get wrecked. Uh, and it is probably somewhat more difficult for the U.S. government to go back to the markets in future and borrow again. Um, so, you know, maybe less of an impact, uh, I think, than people expect. Now, of course, what will happen if that actually does come to pass is that we'll see what we saw in 2008, which is an entire chorus going on how the world is going to end and they're going to be seeking special privileges. Uh, you know, there's going to be a cage fight between the lobbyists which side they, they're, they're on, right? Are they on the friends of government side that get bailed out or are they on the other side that does not? Um, so there'll be a lot of winners and losers. Uh, there'll be a lot of pressure for governments to interfere. Um, but fundamentally, I think that number one, default is more likely than people expect. Number two, it's not quite as bad as it looks. Yeah, I've definitely been kind of on the doom and gloom train recently. Uh, so that, that's interesting hearing you discuss it that way, for sure. Yeah, there's an interesting expression. Um, it's by Adam Smith, um, which is uh, there's a lot of ruin in the economy. So the story goes that some junior staff at his, he was actually a tax collector, oddly enough. But anyway, some junior staff came over and talked about some new law. And he said, oh, the world's going to end. This is the end of England. And Smith said, my dear boy, there's a lot of ruin in a nation. Point being that crises tend, usually, they don't do nearly as much harm as it seems they should. You know, if we take true catastrophes, right, take Japan after World War II, all right, their cities were leveled, burned, ashes, uh, you know, the banking system, I mean, everything was completely collapsed, right? They had no gasoline for the trucks to bring the rice to the city. I mean, just absolute everything was flat. Five years later, oh my God, right? You know, just, it's amazing. Um, 
so, I mean, there is a lot more resiliency um, than people expect. Now, having said, small disruptions often do more damage, right? Basically, the, the small things often do more harm than you expect. The big things often do a lot less. And I think part of the reason for that is that when the big crisis hits, people get creative. Okay, all the laws melt away immediately. There are no laws when, when the... Um, when the S hits the fan, there are no laws anymore, okay? Uh, you get free markets instantly, right? People got to sort it now. Uh, you know, you've got no regulator telling you whether you can sell raw milk, right? So, you know, you get this odd temporary period of absolute free markets. Uh, and, you know, so it's, it's um, kind of fun to walk through. Um, but at any rate, Right, in this uh, particular case, you know, if we're talking about the doom and the gloom, a lot of people on our side talk about hyperinflation. Um, you know, there's sort of an entire industry that kind of talks up crises because it, you know, it sells eyeballs, right? Uh, it's good for business. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, there are countervailing forces. Uh, you know, we, we want to keep in mind that, you know, there's 320 million Americans and they are trying to make life better. Right? They wake up every morning, they try to build something, a certain percent of them are building a business or building a skill or building so on. Uh, the people are always trying to make things better. The governments are making it worse, but you, know, you want to keep in mind that the government's not the entire story. In fact, the government is usually almost none of the story. It's more like uh, random uh, natural disasters, but the people, the people are trying to rise on their own. Right. And so if you just yank the government back for a second, the people do tend to rise. Things do tend to get better. Yeah, that, that's like very, very hopeful um, outlook on things. And I like that a lot. Uh, and that's why, you know, I, I'm pretty hopeful for, you know, my uh, region in Tucson, Arizona. You know, we were talking, I was explaining how our entire industry of the city is built on government and like six of the 10 uh, largest employers are government. Uh, Raytheon is practically a government. So if you part of the government, so if you add them, that's seven. And so in a scenario like that, we would lose the majority of our, you know, economy, but I think that would open up the door for, you know, a lot of growth that's actually organic instead of funded by, you know, nonsense and theft so yeah for sure it, it's it's fascinating you know to look back even in our own history not that long ago um if you go back to before the progressive era okay so the progressives really they took over in world war one okay and before then we had a much freer economy really in europe in the u.s um and you know if you go back and look at that pre-progressive era um you had you know, cities were much more dynamic than they are today. You had a lot of small commerce. Almost everybody ran a side business on something or other. Uh, I mean, just really um, people hustled and, you know, people found little stuff to do. Um, there's famous, uh, let's see, the, um, the baseball parks in New York, okay? They were open somewhat so that you could see from the outside if you're standing on a building, right? So all ringing the baseball parks, people would reinforce their porches and build out railings and seats 
okay, and they would rent out their the roof of their um, porch as seating. And you know, you'd have mom down in the kitchen making up hot dogs and beers and selling to people. And right, so I mean, just kind of to get an idea of what our country looked like before the government got involved, there was just a heck of a lot of small commerce. Uh, regular people hustled in a way that you know today people are like have zombified. Um, I, I mean, really, there's an amazing amount of. Um, productivity, hard work, earning jobs. There's an amazing amount of it that's just being suppressed by government. If you simply get government out of the way, and you know, fortunately, in a crisis, government tends to be the first thing to go. Uh, so it, it's. I'm not saying the people are better off during a crisis, right? You know, the people of Japan in 1948 were not better off than they were in 1938. But I'm saying that the recovery tends to be faster than than people expect. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think a, a classic example of that is what happened in the Soviet Union, where the government just went away overnight and it just became free market chaos all over the place in a beautiful way, you know, for a short time. That's, that's a super example. Absolutely. And so the question is, how close is our government to Soviet? Getting closer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to, I mean, I think ultimately what Bitcoin will do is it'll render the state uh, powerless in many ways and, and completely change the relationship that we have. And, you know, a lot of people, I don't think understand that uh, democracy as we know it today uh, is a relatively new idea and was pretty novel when it came out. And I think Going forward, there'll be a similar shift in governance uh, that will be novel and, and and different because of technology. And so it is kind of fascinating, like how do we uh, position ourselves and, and start building into a future that supports freedom in that way, you know, using Bitcoin uh, versus uh, just kind of continuing on the same broken patterns that we've been you know, experimenting with. Yeah, I agree. Metaphorically, um, we're in like a hot air balloon that's going up and it's going to pop. We know it's going to pop. Okay. And so what you'd really like to do is to either get out of the balloon as soon as possible, <laughs> or you'd like to, you know, I don't know, like maybe have a rope on it or something. So it doesn't get up too high right? You want to limit it in some way. And to me, that's one of the things that Bitcoin does is it, it limits the harm. Okay. So, you know, it's like a life raft. Everybody who you can get into Bitcoin, everybody who starts saving their money in Bitcoin becomes one less casualty when the thing does pop. Okay. Uh, and specifically, I mean, Bitcoin does that in a number of ways, right? One is that on a personal level, of course, it protects your assets. Right. So if there is hyperinflation, then if you're in Bitcoin, you really don't care because your Bitcoin's not hyperinflating. Uh, you know, Bitcoin's if if you're American, you think of a Bitcoin as being worth X dollars. Well, if the you know dollar doubles, then Bitcoin doubles. It probably goes up quite a bit more at the moment because it's still in the speculative stage. But the point is that you're protected on a personal level. But more than that, it's that rope on the hot air balloon 
where it constrains governments to a certain degree, right? So, you know, one of the biggest problems in the world today and one of the biggest sources of growth for governments is exactly that they can print money instead of taxing it. Okay, so when a government has to tax money, it kind of wants you to be rich, right? Like the Chinese government wants the Chinese people to be rich. Why? So it can collect a lot of taxes, right? If the Chinese people were impoverished and on the edge of starvation, like in North Korea, then China would have North Korean levels of taxes. It wouldn't be fun anymore, right? So there's a certain um, parasitic synergy uh, between taxation and government. Now, government is still, you know, taxation is theft and whatnot, but the government at least has some skin in the game. It wants you to be able to feed yourself. The problem, once you get over in senior age, right, into just printing money, um, and, you know, in fact, increasingly the pattern is to ignore the taxes and just go straight for the money. Once you're in that world, now it's totally different because the government doesn't particularly care whether you can eat or not. That's exactly what we saw during COVID, right? So government shut down entire economies. In the state of nature, people would have been starving, but governments could paper over that by printing up the money. And so, you know, in normal times, and indeed early in the pandemic, there were certain governments who, you know, they resisted um, uh, lockdowns, like local governments, for example, were more reluctant to do lockdowns because they said, we need the money, right? And then, you know, the feds came in and bailed out states and uh, locals. And so at that point, well, okay, they were in the same as Fedland. They could just be predators. They didn't have to be parasites anymore. They didn't, they didn't care whether, you know, there was any business at all in the city because they were still getting paid. So you would kind of like to return to that, right? Not to praise taxes, but taxes are better than the alternative, which is a government that eats well, whether or not you starve. You do not want that, right? <laughs> you, if you're gonna have a government, you want a government that wants the same things you want. Yeah. Right. Yeah, on that topic of the federal government bailing out local um, governments, that, that was something, uh, right towards the beginning of the pandemic, I had uh, some people on from the think tank in Chicago called Truth and Accounting. And that was something that we were talking about is how a lot of local governments are losing any ability to, to actually self-govern or becoming more dependent on, you know, the Fed, uh, Federal Reserve, as well as the federal government and how that's, you know, kind of problematic. Um, yeah, and that's been a trend uh, pretty much ever since the beginning. Um, you know, the U.S. first had the Articles of Confederation, which were extraordinarily decentralized. Mm -hmm. uh, the federal government had to come hat in hand and beg for contributions from each state. It was beautiful. Uh, and then that was, ironically, the Articles were perpetual. It says it like the subtitle is Perpetual Act of uh, but somehow they just kind of pretended that they didn't exist and came up with a new constitution, which is really weird. Uh, it was basically a coup, but it was like a coup by pretending. Um, I mean, they were never actually repealed. So, you know, they're, I mean, people have argued they're still in force. Um, but at any rate, so the constitution was much more centralized, gave a lot more power to the central government. And then ever since then, it's been basically a ratchet, just step by step removing powers from the states, uh, you know, direct election of senators, you know, there have been a whole bunch of things that the feds have put in to take powers. And, you know, the states do the same things with uh, locals, you know, they tend to try to grab power, 
So, you know, the power all tends to centralize. I mean, in a sense, this is just the nature of it, right? Once you've got a government that on paper is superior to another, that superior government is going to take more and more power. That's what people try to do with the United Nations um, unsuccessfully so far, but they're making progress, unfortunately. Uh, that's what happened in the European Union, right? There's almost no area, right? Like once you give a piece of power to Brussels, it keeps it. Okay, um, there's almost no countervailing force uh, that works against this sort of gradual centralization of power to the highest level in a given jurisdiction. Um, so, you know, the, 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 I mean, again, that's probably in the category of it's going to continue until there's a crisis. Uh, we joked uh, before the show about a uh, new bill in uh, the New Hampshire House to secede. Uh, that is, of course, the <laughs> that is the response to that. Um, you know, I doubt any of those will succeed until things get really, really bad. Um, but our system is fundamentally built, right? Um, you know, the reason that we have a federal system that, you know, gives so much power to states is the assumption that power can over-centralize, this can make people very upset with the arrangement and want to leave. So, I mean, we do have constitutional mechanisms um, at the moment, none of them are being used because we don't have a critical mass of politicians in office who can actually use those things, right? Who, for example, could reverse this centralization of power and move us back towards the traditional federalist system. We don't have a critical mass of politicians who will do that, and we won't until a large number of them win elections. Why would they win elections? Setting aside election fraud there is some point where there is such a strong social anger against you know, the status quo that a large percent of people will put in enough politicians that they will reverse it. So the question is, do we get to that point, that sort of peaceful, happy um, reversing the process, right? Or uh, you know, does it continue getting worse? Yeah, yeah. Like it's kind of circling back to the topic of a, a debt default. Uh, it it seems like that's really contrary to the goals of centralizing power and and kind of promoting this globalist system because it kind of detaches the dependency or yeah the co I, I call it codependency not interdependency of of different countries on each other if they're not be able to lend to each other as much. It, I wonder if that leads to like an increase of isolationism and nationalism. Uh, it, yes, um, with a caveat, which is that um, historically when countries have defaulted, uh, they have been, it's been surprisingly easy for them to go back to the markets, mm -hmm. right? Um, and now we don't know exactly why that is, right? There's one hypothesis that this is because other countries bail out the banks. Right. So, you know, Latin America, for example, had a whole bunch of defaults. Uh, typically, a bunch of New York banks would get wiped out on them or would suffer large losses. And then the U.S. would step in and make them whole. And it would do that because it, it's trying to get something from Mexico. And so it's it's paying off city so that it gets something out of Mexico. So, I mean, it's you know, it's a pretty disgusting process. Um, but anyway, we don't know exactly why that is that bankers have, you know, kept coming back for another punch in the face, um, but they have. 
so, you know, that's sort of the first caveat is that, I mean, it's possible that, you know, it has surprisingly little impact. Basically, the creditors who the government doesn't like get wiped out and we just start over again with smaller amounts uh, and the process keeps going. Um, that is one possibility. However, just for argument's sake, let's say that there's nobody bailing anybody out. And so banks say, no, never more. We're not going to get, you know, fool me once. Um, if, if indeed governments cannot borrow anymore, then yes, I mean, you would, you would see less cooperation government to government. Um, you would not necessarily see a big impact on international trade in general. Um, you know, government deficits do not generally um, finance international trade. Uh, they have relatively little impact. Um, you know, to illustrate the point, if the U.S. put in a balanced budget amendment and then every country in the world was inspired by our prudence and wanted to copy us so that no government could run deficits anymore, that would have almost no impact on international trade, uh, cooperation, interdependency, any of those things. Uh, I mean, fundamentally, what's driving those things partly is, you know, just the natural fact that, you know, successful companies are located in different countries. Uh, countries have different features. Some of them have oil, some of them have cheap labor, et cetera, right? So these are sort of um, uh, beneficial drivers of international trade uh, because it benefits both sides. Uh, you've got a second less beneficial factor, I think, that's driving international trade, which is that rich countries in general are shooting themselves in the foot, particularly they're shooting their manufacturing sectors in the foot uh, because it, it looks good, right? So whether it's for green reasons or for pro-worker reasons, whatever it is, you know, the US and Europe and Japan have been putting these uh, burdens on our own businesses for, for a long time, but certainly for the past 50 years. And I think more than cheap labor, that is what has driven a lot of manufacturing over to places like China. I mean, a lot of the things that China makes are actually very, use very little labor, you know, like steel. I mean, you know, there's lots of products that China is very dominant in that use extremely small amounts of labor. They're almost all capital and uh, machines and things like that. Uh, so, you know, I think that's a big part of it. So now if governments could not have deficits, right? If that shrunk governments, which I think it would, then governments might lay off some of that, you know, shooting ourselves in the foot, in which case, yes, uh, you, you, you probably would end up getting more international trade, but it would almost certainly be more fair international trade. Isn't, isn't that a part of the Triffin dilemma with why um, manufacturing has been shipped overseas as well? Well, the essence there, which uh, a lot of people argue as well, um, is that the U.S. is allegedly overvalued. Uh, and so the idea is that that renders our exports uncompetitive. Um, the problem I have the, with that in general is that, you know, if you look at the value of the U.S. dollar and other currencies, it actually hasn't changed much in about 50 years. Uh, it's more or less held steady. And over that time, you know, we've just been absolutely gutted in terms of our domestic industries. Um, so yes, if you, you know, intervened and devalued the dollar and printed so many of them that it was worthless, yes, that would give you a boost in the short term in terms of exports. It would also, you know, it would impoverish your people. 
Uh, so, you know, it's not necessarily something that you want to do. It, it strikes me more as like a tissue fire. It's, it's kind of cheating. Like the honest way to do it, it would be to remove all the burdens on, you know, domestic business so that we actually have growth again and we have jobs and whatnot. You know, because the problem is if you try to buy fast growth by devaluing, well, guess what? Everybody's going to do that too, right? So then Europe devalues, Japan devalues, Brazil devalues, everybody does it. So at that point, uh, you know, they, they steal back the growth that you stole in the first place. So I know that it gets the blame. That's, that's part of the petrodollar hypothesis, right? That, you know, the U.S. Has, is in decline because uh, we've tried to hold the dollar high. I don't think, I don't think so. I mean, you know, if we lived in an alternative universe where the, where the dollar was still backed by gold, then the dollar would have been very strong and we would have probably been much better off uh, because the government would not have had the ability to impose this massive regulatory and welfare state that it used all that money for. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. And it, so like one thing Tucson's trying to do right now is they're trying to tax and disincentivize use of cash. And so they're going to raise like they're, they're labeling it as like, we're going to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Uh, but they want everything reported now. So like if somebody hires a babysitter or pays the neighbor to mow the lawn or, you know, whatever it is, uh, that is going to be subjected to taxing. And if you don't comply, then the worker has the ability to sue you or any state agency can go in and bust you for it. And kind of going on your idea of these regulations make it impossible to be competitive. I I think that's like the perfect example of their thinking and, and processes of doing things like that. So. Absolutely. And, you know, they they kind of started with manufacturing because it's very easy to harass manufacturing, right? Black market manufacturing is difficult. Um, black market uh, childcare is easy, right? Yeah. So it's like we experienced the pain first in manufacturing. It's now spread over to other businesses in general, like restaurants. If you go into any major American city, what's really striking, like you go to Philadelphia or Baltimore, New York or something, you go into the neighborhoods and every store or every, every corner, I grew up in Philadelphia, every corner is a former storefront. Okay, you know this because it's a house, but they have a big plate glass window and they have a door on the corner with a little step up. It was a store at some point. It's no longer a store. They're all houses. You see this in Europe too. Okay, if you, uh, I don't know, zoom in on Google Maps to Brussels and you look at a at a train station, then you look at all the houses near the train station, they used to be businesses. They're not anymore, they're all houses, right? So we have so, uh, our, our government has been so predatory on particularly small business, right? They just wipe these out. And then, you know, people go around and, you know, they go to a small town in America where, you know, it's a gas station, a Burger King, you know, it used to have a diner, it used to have a dress store, it used to have all this. And people blame markets or they blame Walmart or they blame Amazon or whatever. But fundamentally, these were dying long before any of those existed, right? When I was growing up in Philly, this process was already half done. That was in the 70s and none of that stuff existed. Um, And so, you know, sooner or later, uh, 
the, the bill is going to come due. And in the meantime, they are doing this more and more. They are hunting the remaining gray market parts of our economy, which is still pretty substantial. I mean, it's something like 20% of the economy is still gray market. Uh, they are hunting those and, you know, partly, uh, you know, they have lobbyists who push them like unions and then partly they just do it because they want the money. Uh, but you put those together and, you know, in the case of manufacturing, we had a pressure valve, which was go get China to do it, which has like no regulations. Okay. Uh, but in the case of services, we don't have that pressure valve. You know, you can't just fly over to China for uh, dinner. Uh, and so we, you know, we just take it on the chin and then, you know, you go to these uh, Rust Belt towns where you used to have just a whole lively, you know, downtown with, you know, bars and restaurants and all this people on the street, kids running around, all gone. Thanks to government. Yeah. Let the black market rise. That's what I see happening ultimately with these. People. Oh, absolutely. Uh, black markets are, you know, the people's savior. I'm a huge fan of black markets. Now, there are particular activities, you know, like ransom. Okay, there. Yes, there are bad activities, you know, but that's a very, very small percent uh, of the black market. The vast majority is legitimate. It's illegal, but it's morally legitimate. Uh, I mean, a, a, a very large proportion, um, you know, estimates vary, but it's something like one in five or, or one in three. I mean, it's a very large percent of cash transactions are illegal. Um, oh, they're, yeah. The vast majority are moral. In fact, they're more moral than, you know, what governments do, uh, but they are illegal. And so it's, it's just a matter of time until governments track that stuff down. If they can. And, and that keep of- trying. And, and yeah, I mean, CBDCs, uh, you know, gov coins, fed coins, those are a big step in hunting those last pieces down. Yeah, that's super interesting. So right before we started the interview, I saw the mayor of, uh, of Miami is launching his own shit coin. And I wonder if that is kind of a part of it and what we'll see going forward to try and eliminate those things. It's the best silver lining I can put on it is that um, you do want uh, the other side to see value in crypto in general. Um, You know, whether it's local government seeing it as a way to get free money or charities, you know, UNICEF or something, you know, so you do want sympathetic um, people from the other side. Uh, I think that's the best spin you could put on it. I mean, broadly speaking, it's, you know, just, just go with Bitcoin, man, you know, do what El Salvador did. Um, Facebook versus, uh, you know, Twitter is a really nice example, right? So Facebook has basically been trying to come up with its own shitcoin, Libra or DM. Uh, and, and Twitter didn't go that route, right? Dorsey said, no, you know, we're just going to go with Bitcoin. Why do we need our own coin? Uh, it is a nightmare. It's a regulatory nightmare. You know, Facebook has been kissing butt for years now, making, I believe, zero progress. Um, why would government explicitly give you permission to run the competition? I mean, it's naive. You know, I don't know what Zuck has for breakfast. Um, but at any rate, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> The uh, Miami coin will probably be as successful as the many other government coins, like the Petro down in Venezuela. Um, you know, I, I applaud him in general for being interested in crypto. And, you know, he's been encouraging towards Bitcoin. 
uh, Francis Suarez down in uh, Miami, but whoever gave him advice to do this, uh, I wish they'd cut it out and listen to more sane voices. Listen to Jack Dorsey. There's people out there. Yeah. We'll, we'll see what Gary Gensler has to say about it. Gary Gensler is a work of art. A lot of people had hope in him, you know, because he taught that course at MIT and he seemed to know uh, crypto in general. Um, you know, this may be an adage of, you know, he knows just enough to cause trouble. Uh, <laughs> you know, if, if he didn't know the slightest thing about crypto, maybe he would have kind of held back and been like, ah, you know, I don't know. It's new. It's innovative. You know, we didn't really know about the internet early on. So let's hold back. But that, you know, that's not Gensler. Gensler is hyperactive. He seems to want to regulate everything. He's going after Robinhood. He's going after SPACs. He's going after index providers like Dow Jones Industrial Average. I mean, the guy, the guy just, he, he he's a force of nature. I think he'll destroy a lot of things before he's done. Yeah, it's going to be yeah. interesting to watch. Yeah, and, you know, it's hard to say what that does for Bitcoin, of course, right? I mean, the interesting dynamic for Bitcoin is that, number one, you can't kill it. Number two, if you kill the Ethereums and all the, the ripples and all the rest of it, then actually that may be good for Bitcoin because a lot of those uh, shitcoiners peel off. You know, they, they no longer are tempted to store their college funds in Ethereum and they come over to Bitcoin. So, you know, it's an interesting dynamic in terms of Bitcoin itself. But I mean, fundamentally, you know, if you're a Bitcoiner, just enjoy the ride. You know, I mean, if they ban it, it'll probably go down for a while. Maybe it'll go down 90%. Who knows? But who cares? <laughs> you know, it's Bitcoin's a long-term bet. Hold on. Just store it. As long as you're not selling your Bitcoin, it doesn't particularly matter. It's like, you know, you had people in the housing crisis back in 2008, and their house lost half their value. And if you're living in your house and you like your house, who cares? You're not selling it. What do you care what it's worth? Yeah. Right? Just continue enjoying it. And because you know how the story ends. Right. So on Bitcoin, none of us know how each chapter is going to end. You know, who knows? Uh, China banned Bitcoin, banned Bitcoin today. Tomorrow could be the US, then it could be who knows what. None of us know how each chapter is going to go. If you did know, you'd make a buttload of money. But what, what I think we do know is how the story ends. And the story ends with fiat collapse sooner or later. At which point you've got gold and Bitcoin as last man standing. And, you know, if you put Bitcoin up against gold, uh, I mean, gold can't, hand, can't hold a candle. Right? There's, no, there's no lightning network for, uh, for gold. Um, it's hard to move. <laughs> you know, how would you buy something on Amazon with physical gold? Right. Once you're out of physical gold, now you're in decentralized organizations. Once you have centralized organizations, now government can get them. So exactly. gold is fatally flawed. So when fiat dies, the last man standing is Bitcoin. Yeah. I'm kind of rooting for the, the government to become super draconian and try and ban it on the short or the near future, because I, I think that would be beneficial. Yeah, I don't necessarily want to root for it just because on a moral basis, I want more people to be able to get in the lifeboat just because I love humans and whatnot. But I mean, on a on a tactical level, you know, if they do ban it, then all that means is that all the normal people run away and only the honey badgers own Bitcoin. So, you know, go ahead, guys, make my day. <laughs> you know, if it's going to go that route, just do it. Do it, guys. 
Yeah, I, th- I think at this point it would just strengthen the network so much, and and it, I mean, we just saw what happened in Nigeria when they banned it, and what happened. Like it, it went through the roof. <laughs> right? It did nothing. It, it all it meant was that normal Nigerians, right, people who were afraid of getting arrested, couldn't participate anymore. I mean, I don't think Nigeria is really enforcing it anyway, so it's having almost no impact. But anyway, even if they did go house to house and torture people to figure out their, uh, (laughs) you know, where's the Bitcoin? Um, All all that does is chases off the normal people. Why why governments hate normal people? I don't know, but um, but yeah, the dynamics are funny. They there's they can do less than they think they can do about it. Yeah, it it. It, it's this is why Bitcoin is so hopeful. I think in the in the face of just all the uncertainty and chaos right now. Right, you take something like Ethereum. I mean, the concept. I'm, I'm not opposed to the concept. I love. I mean, it's relatively decentralized compared to say the Silk Road. Uh, you know, I mean, sure, go for it. But fundamentally, that's the issue. There is going to be an extinction event from regulation on the crypto industry. And I think it's extremely unlikely that any of that stuff's gonna survive. You know, so, I mean, if you wanna experiment with Ethereum, if you wanna use it to access DeFi, right? Which, you know, which is, I mean, it's a legitimate, a lot of it's risky, but anyway, it's as legitimate as Wall Street is. Um, You know, if you wanna use it for these purposes, sure, but be very, very aware that there is a super special risk that all crypto, but maybe not quite all, Monero, you could debate, Anyway, almost all crypto outside of Bitcoin has this super special risk, which is governments are trying to kill it and probably can. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, 100%. It's a, yeah, it drives me crazy. I've got an uncle that's a shit coiner and he'll text me his like ICO that he's getting into and I'll unpack it for him a little bit. And there's just like this disconnect of uh, not wanting to actually investigate what's going on here. Yeah, you know, the problem is, I saw a uh, survey the other day, um, 60% of low income people, their retirement plan is the lottery. (laughs) Okay, and there is no question that, you know, when you buy the lottery, you put a dollar in, statistically, you're going to get 65 cents This has been well known for ages. Everybody knows this. It is not under debate. There are no academics who are pimping the other side. This is common knowledge among people who pay attention. Uh, So, you know, unfortunately, uh, a fool and his money will be separated and there's not much you can do. I mean, the most, you know, the most I try is to encourage people to limit their bets you know, if you're going to play around with Dogecoin, do it with a hundred bucks. Don't do it with your college fund. Try to limit the damage um, when that day comes. Yeah, hundred percent. One second, my dog is need to let her out of the room. All right, sorry about that. Um, well, yeah, well, this has been an awesome conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Where Where can people follow your work going forward from here? I'm pretty active on Twitter, uh, Prof Stange, P-R-O-F-S-T-O-N-G-E. And then I've also, I've got a Substack linked over there. 
at a crypto economy uh, where I write about Austrian economics and Bitcoin. It's called crypto economy, uh, but almost everything I write on is Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's awesome. I've been enjoying reading your work for sure. Well, good. Uh, Thank you. And then one final question. Uh, what, what's got you really stoked on life and hopeful for the future near term? The frog jumping out of the boiling pot. You know, so, I mean, my entire life, we've been losing, okay? Uh, we meaning the pro-liberty side. And we've been losing very slowly and things accelerated. <laughs> I don't think that's a controversial statement at this point. Uh, and what's exciting to me is that so many people are, forget the other side. The other side didn't, didn't get woke. The other side is doing exactly what they've always done. They're using the same lines, the same crap they've always done. Our side woke up, right? If you look at opinion polls from you know, pre-Trump, most Republicans still believe the news media. I mean, it's shocking, but they, they, they would pick up the New York Times and think that that was truth. All right, so so many people are waking up now. I think the number of people who were truly skeptical of mainstream, right, before Trump, before COVID, certainly, you're, you were talking like 10%, maybe, okay? Now, the percent who are skeptical is like more or less half and rising, right? So people right now are scared out of their wits because, uh, you know, <laughs> because you know what? Um, but at the same time, there are more and more every day, there are more people waking up to what bullshit we live in. That has actually got me really turned on. It is going to get worse before it gets better. I think there's no question we have to be ready for that. But so many people are coming over now onto the other side. Uh, that, that's what really has me excited. Yeah, it's got me excited too. And pretty hopeful for the future. It's it's awesome that we have this. I mean, just the stuff coming out of Australia of people not putting up with that anymore is, you know, it's exciting. It's awful to see that they let it get that far. Uh, and hopefully we don't get to that point in the U S but it seems like there's a large segment of the population that is just not willing to put up with the nonsense. Yeah. I, I had that metaphor earlier on the hot air balloon, you know, so we had a rope on it previously and the rope was being let go little by little okay they were giving it right that was dangerous that was a problem at this point we can they cut the rope but we can see they cut the rope and at this point we just got to convince people get out now guys yeah. so I, I i am actually hopeful um you know it's darkest before it's dawn. it might sound deluded to actually be hopeful with the state of the world but so many people are getting pissed off about it i'm i'm actually uh i'm pretty stoked about it Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you again for coming on. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah. yeah good luck with the show and uh, looking forward to, to keeping up with you. Awesome. That was an awesome conversation with Peter. Big thank you to him for coming on. But yeah, I mean, getting into it, the debt defaults coming. Uh, things are going to get pretty wild and we just have to prepare for it be prepared for it bitcoin is a great way to prepare for it and starting ahead of the curve building out these circular economies i think is going to place us in a much better position than the general population but yeah people you know are just acting completely oblivious to 
you know, what's on the horizon right now and some pretty serious stuff that they should be considering but aren't for whatever reason. And yeah, that's that's not the, the way of the Bitcoin and the Bitcoiners ahead of the curve on these things and it's taking initiative to move towards sovereignty and, and move towards, you know, providing themselves and their families a better future. So this is the community that I am proud to say that I belong to instead of, you know, all the other people out there that are just bickering about whatever nonsense is going on that week. Uh, but yeah, feeling pretty hopeful about the future uh, as a result of you know, the people I interact with. The Bitcoin meetups are awesome. Great great time to to meet solid people but yeah we've got uh awesome show toxic airways had a bunch of people drop in last week uh happens every monday night so tonight at uh, 5 30 uh we uh yeah we're trying to do that we're trying to build out you know just solid bitcoin community uh, another great show bitcoin kindergarten uh, that I am making a commitment to be at every week. Just great time with solid Bitcoiners. And, you know, if you're in NIM and you're not feeling comfortable with going to the meetups, those are the places to be. And hope to see you there. But yeah, thanks for uh, watching this and have a good one.